Amen and amen. Would you find in your Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 24, it's the last chapter in 2 Samuel, and uh, we'll be reading some of those verses there. And some of you maybe uh, we're used to uh, verses, all the verses being on the screen, but we're going to look at that chapter, read some, and talk about some. And so I want to encourage you to have your Bibles open so that uh, you might be able to know that what I'm saying really is true and is from the Word of God. Aren't you glad you come today? Already with the children's choir, Lord's Supper, appreciate our praise band, and uh, we're thankful that we're able to, to be here today. You can see that it is the uh, last chapter of Second Samuel, so we are coming toward the end of our uh, series, that, uh, David anyway, and uh, we're continuing our trek and our journey through the Bible, but uh, coming toward the end, some of you think, well, maybe thank goodness. I don't know. If you're thinking that, it's my fault, because... Uh, as we have learned so many good, great, wonderful lessons about David, how it points to Jesus, all of these things. So, uh, so we're here today, and even from the Old Testament, as we uh, read in this particular passage from 2 Samuel in chapter 28, we realize, as we sing about, we're going to speak about Jesus. So we're in 2 Samuel chapter 20. Excuse me, did I say 28? Anything in there? 24 is where we are. There's not a 2 Samuel chapter 28. 2 Samuel chapter 24. This now is the Word of God as we speak about Jesus, even from the Old Testament. Chapter 24 and verse 1, it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king will still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab, commanders of the army, went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Skip down to verse 9. It reads, And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away my iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you, choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall to the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. We'll stop right there for now. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word today. It was on October 31st in the year of our Lord, 1517, on the eve of All Saints Day that Martin Luther, a monk, also a college professor, and the one that we would know as the great reformer, nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. He was protesting against the Churches selling of indulgences in order for the people of the church and the community in order for them to obtain salvation. That one act, that nailing to the door of those 95 theses that talked about what God really said. 
it brought in or ushered in what we know now as the great Protestant Reformation. It was what opened the door so that the common people might be able to be able to read God's word. It put an emphasis or a renewed understanding that salvation is by grace through faith alone, nothing that can be earned, nothing that can be purchased. It is not by works. Well, the work, the work of Christ on the cross made salvation a free gift and available to all who believe and all who repent of their sins and follow Jesus. And if you're here today and you are not part of the family of God, you do not have Jesus in your heart, you do not have a home in heaven, or you are unsure about that very thing, it is my hope today that because you've come into this place that you will be able and be challenged to know that you have Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and you have a home in heaven and He has a purpose and a place for you in His kingdom purposes even today. You will also see that being a follower of Jesus has its challenges and its responsibilities. From the uh, life of David, we'll be able to see to whom much is given, much is required. In this concluding chapter of 2 Samuel, we'll find that you and I who are followers of Jesus are to be, are to be challenged to give our very best to Jesus as children of the King of Kings. I read something not long ago, uh, kind of as an illustration. The Texas Army National Guard has a group of special workers called riggers. Their job is to fold and to pack the parachutes soldiers use when jumping from an airplane 5,000 feet above the ground. These people are intensely dedicated to their task. The riggers' creed is, I will be sure always. They know the jumpers need assurance that everything regarding their parachute is perfect in the 20 minutes it takes to meticulously fold the MC-11 military parachute. 30 folds are required. A jumper has nothing to do with his chute until the time comes that he puts the chute on and he is ready to take a jump. Trusting in the air-free performance of the riggers is all a jumper has to rely on. The riggers' creed further states, I'll never let the idea that a piece of work is good enough to make me a potential murderer through a careless mistake or oversight, for I know there can be no compromise with perfection. Riggers know the parachute business is a life or death enterprise. Mistakes cost lives. There is no room for less than the best. One reason that we want to keep our focus on the mission of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and offer Him what is best is not because of physical consequences necessarily, but there are certainly spiritual consequences. Because all we know that if the church is not doing its best, if you and I as believers are not doing our very best, we know that there is a heavenly consequence. We know that eternity hangs in the balance when we fail to do so. The story that we've read about David, and we have now read many over the past several weeks and several months, maybe it's not the most well-known, maybe not the most popular stories about David, but I believe that still... It may be David at his best, as we'll see later in the chapter, and David at his worst. In fact, many call this passage David's greatest sin. Still, David was called the man after God's own heart. So today I want us to take a look at this story of David's greatest sin, one of his finest moments, and see what lessons we can learn about giving our best and overcoming pride. And we're going to ask the question, can we do both? This last chapter of 2 Samuel it's toward the end of David's reign as king. It's toward the end of his life. He's not a young man anymore, which kind of helps us to know that regardless of your age or your season of life, there are still lessons to be learned and they're still tasked at hand. 
The chapter comes at a time when the nation of Israel actually was at its political and military height that uh, David, through the Lord, had won all of his battles against his enemies. Still, there were battles to fight, but they were the strongest in their history. However, we read in verse 1 just a moment ago of this chapter that God is angry at the, with the nation of Israel. We're not told specifically in this chapter why the Lord is angry, but it may have something to do with their lack of gratitude for the blessings because of David's government through the Lord. Uh, after all, they had for a time in the previous chapters followed, many had followed Absalom. Not all had followed David when Absalom, David's son, when he tried to overthrow his father and become king. And as part of God's judgment, God allowed David to take a census of the people, particularly he was wanting to fight, as we read, how many fighting men that he had, how many soldiers he had, who would have been all men, able-bodied men, ages 20 years and older. There's a parallel passage to this in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, same story is told, some with different, little bit different details. And there it makes it clear that Satan led David to take this census. Now, Please understand to count people is not a sin. We find in Exodus that people were being counted. The book of Numbers is about numbers as well as a lot of other things and people are being counted. In the New Testament book of Acts, we find people being counted time and time again, particularly those who are coming to know the Lord Jesus. Even in the book of Revelation, people were being counted, counted until the apostle John said that, said that there were too many to count. Nothing wrong with counting people in a nation or even counting people in a church. What was wrong for David was his reason. It was his motivation for counting the people. David had allowed Satan to tempt his pride as the king of a mighty, powerful nation. Now, we've talked about, and you know stories about David, even if you've not been here totally on our journey, that David encountered many giants. First of those among many was, of course, Goliath. We know that he fought many, many enemies, lots and lots of Philistines. Uh, we know that he... Uh, had the giant of King Saul who hated him and wanted to kill him. We know that uh, had the giant of temptation come his way and some in which he failed because we knew that he was involved in adultery of Bathsheba, murder of uh, her husband. We know of a dysfunctional family of a kingdom divided. We know that when David asked forgiveness of his sins that God forgave him and he gave him many successes. And in his later years, Perhaps it is his greatest giant so far, and it is that of pride. It may be today. In fact, we actually listed last week many of the giants that we've talked about over the last several weeks and months, and it may be your greatest giant today. And that is pride, trying to do things on your own, thinking of your own self-importance and relying on your own accomplishments rather than on the Lord Jesus. Or it may be there's still a giant out there, whether we've talked about it or not, that is still your greatest giant, whether it's pride or not. But we know because of the Lord Jesus, what he did for us on the cross, we know that the victory's already been won and you need to claim the victory on your giant. But speaking of pride, James in the New Testament said, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. When David was a young boy, went out to fight Goliath, he always gave credit to God. Even before he went to do battle, with Goliath, with slingshot in hand, he said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He knew that it was God who saved him in the battles with the Philistines that saved him from King Saul, for he was to be king himself. 
And on days after his victories and days after conquering Jerusalem and taking over that which would become the capital of the holy city and even bringing the ark to Jerusalem, we know that David continued to praise God, danced before the Lord, sang to God. Many of those songs we have in the book of Psalms. But like David, we're never immune to temptation. Even the commander of his army, Joab, we read in verse 3 just a moment ago, he saw the sin, the wrong motivation in the calling for the census. So he told David that he hoped that he would live to see a hundred times more in the kingdom than there are now, but asked him not to take that census. Nevertheless, David was determined to take a census on account of the military men. And they began to take the census and they began on the other side of the Jordan River and they made kind of a if we didn't read those particular verses of all those names, if I had a volunteer to read all the names, I would have taken it. But it made all those uh, kind of a counterclockwise all the way through the land of Palestine and the promised land till he ended up at the land of Judah. It took nine months and 20 days, allowing plenty of time for David to repent and to have a change of heart or a change of mind. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, the Bible says that there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination. And what's the very first one? It's the only one we've listed there on the screen. It's a proud look, according to the King James. Some translations say a haughty eyes. Sin of pride doesn't seem that terrible of a sin compared to some others, but we may still see that it may be David at his worst. It certainly can be the sin of a nation that finds itself relying on not on God, but on political government or military strength or economic stability. We need to be careful that as a nation that we know that all nations rise and fall only at the hand of God. Pride can be the sin of a church after experiencing some growth or success or seeing victories take place. And we do, we're not to forget and to thank God often for the blessings that come from being God's church. But sometimes the number of baptisms and dollars and buildings can be a reason to praise God. It can also be a temptation and motivated to count what we have instead of simply to rely upon God. Church may, we remember God's word says, pride goeth before a fall. So what could we be sure that we're going to be giving God our best in being God's church and building God's kingdom? It's this, you follow along, hopefully in your notes, remember to count on God. Remember to count on God. Just as pride can bring down a nation and lead a church to fall, it can also be the greatest temptation you and I face. Whether it be we're looking for popularity or something about our job or position in church or community, how much money we have in the bank or the give, how much we give or the size of the amount of our possessions. As Christians, pride can destroy our lives. It can destroy our witness. It can keep us from being usable vessels in the kingdom of God because our hearts then become filled with something else rather than humble gratitude. And most people are counting something. I mean, young children often are counting friends. Teenagers are often counting their popularity or moments of. Young adults count their cars, houses, and possessions. Middle adults seem to count their days to retirement. And senior adults are counting their savings or lack thereof. Well... How can you give your best and overcome pride? We're, we're to learn as David did that we're to spend more of our energies counting on God. And then do not trust your own accomplishments. Do not put trust in your own accomplishments. Which you spend more time counting? Counting on God or counting what you have? Remember the sin's not in the counting, but in the motivation and where your heart is. 
And as we continue the story, I want, to, I want you to be able to see in this story a reason to count your possessions, a reason to count even your accomplishments, a better reason, and what will help you to count on God more. When Joab, his commander, had made their full circle all the way through the promised land, through the nation of Israel and coming to the tribe of Judah where Jerusalem was and David was located, they gave the report in verse 9. We read it a moment ago. It said that there's 800,000 fighting men or valiant men in the northern tribes of Israel and 500,000 in Judah. When David heard the report, the Bible says his heart sank. Actually says in the English Standard Version, which we read a moment ago, it says his heart struck him after he had numbered the people. In the New International Version, it says that his heart was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men. In the New King James Version, it says his heart condemned him after he numbered the people. And probably the understanding of this, of why this took place, may have been for a couple of reasons. It may have been as David counted. It may have been that David thought that he had even more, but he recognized that he had sinned. And, and perhaps what happened, maybe the pride that he thought he was going to have in the number of fighting men under his command or the commander of God's armies, maybe brought him such dissatisfaction when he thought it was going to bring so much more satisfaction. And left him with a hollow feeding, convicted him of his sin. If you want to be sure that you're giving God your best, you'll first remember to count on God. Second, and I've got them numbered today. I don't always number, but kind of a, I think one kind of builds on the other. For a second, you'll have a conviction about foolish pride. You'll have a conviction about your foolish pride, which is what David said it was in his life that it was something that was foolish. Listen, young people, that which you think will bring you the most satisfaction be it popularity or friends or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or parties or clothes or cards or even grades. Whatever satisfaction you think might will be brought will be short-lived and will one day leave you hollow with nothing left if that's what you're depending on for joy or for purpose for satisfaction in life. Listen, adults, if you're depending on your bank account or that which you can accumulate or, or your ultimate purpose or even you think that you can accomplish on your own as you probably have already experienced, you know that's going to leave you empty. And then, then one or two things are going to happen when you recognize I've tried to accumulate, accumulate these things, I've tried to accomplish these things. They've not left me with much satisfaction. One or two things will happen. One, you'll think, well, I've got to accomplish more. I'm going to get more stuff. I'm going to get better stuff. I'm going to get bigger stuff. And then it will continue to leave you dissatisfied. Or you will do like David did. As children of God, you will be convicted of any foolish pride and let your convictions lead to responsibility. Let your convictions lead to responsibility or to action. For there's only one who truly satisfies and brings purpose and joy, and that is Jesus, the Almighty God and Savior. Now, I've called this David's greatest sin, or I've said others have called it David's greatest sin because probably when I said that, you automatically thought, well, David's greatest sin surely was his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. How could this sin be greater than that? Well, when David was confronted by Nathan about his sins with Bathsheba and her husband, he confessed and said, I have sinned before God. Notice what he said when convicted of sin in verse 10. He said, not just I've sinned before God, but I have sinned greatly in what I have done. With an emphasis on greatly. 
Several lives were lost due to David's sin with Bathsheba. 70,000 lives were lost after this sin of pride. Although we recognize that this was not just David's sin, but it was a sin of a nation. And while we do not categorize sin, the effects of this episode had far-reaching effects. And as we have mentioned, to whom much is given, much is required. David's pride as God's servant had far-reaching effects. Now, sin of pride may not seem that bad, particularly in the culture in which we were raised. Almost we talk about, boy, we need to have more pride or we need to do this or accomplish this on our own, counterintuitive to what the Bible teaches us, that we need to only boast in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and we need to count on Him. So understand that once you come into the family of God, yes, it will be counterintuitive to the culture. But we have also have great responsibility for we've been given the kingdom of God. We are to be the salt and the light of the world. We're not to take any sin lightly that hurts the cause of Christ or impedes our witness. And when we are convicted of our own mistakes and we understand that we have sinned, well, what are we to do? We're to turn it over to Jesus. Ask Christ to forgive us of our sins. Confess it before God. Claim His forgiveness. He's the God of new beginnings. He'll make things right. He'll put us in the right path. He'll make us usable again. We saw it in David's life time and time again. That night after David's confession of sin, the Lord spoke to the prophet Gad and gave him three options for punishment toward the nation of Israel. Actually, David's sin, we understand, was a reflection of the people's sins and the sin of the nations were foolish pride ungratefulness, putting their trust in something other than God alone. David was not the only one who needed to be convicted of sin, but he would have to make a choice for the nation. Giving your best to God means always seeking to make the right choice. Always seeking to make the right choice. Now, I don't know in this crowd, there probably are some, any of you ever had to go and get your own switch for your parents when you were in trouble? Listen, if you... Younger people probably don't even know of this thing, but we used to have to go and get our own switch. And you had to be careful in your selection. You didn't want to get one that was too big that would bring unbearable pain, nor that you had to get one too small that your parents had to go and get one for you because that would have been far worse. Here, David had a choice that he was going to have to make, and he wanted to use some wisdom in this very thing because of David's pride and the people's disobedience. Three choices are mentioned in verse 13. We read it a moment ago. Three years of famine, three months of being pursued by enemies, or three days of plagues or pestilence. He had to make a choice. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I was a senior in high school, and I was in the principal's office, and not for a good reason. And I really felt terrible about it. I mean, I felt terrible about being, I mean, I just felt bad because, first of all, I'm a senior in high school. You know, it's not a good place to be when you're a senior uh, I had already uh, kind of come public that I thought the Lord was calling me to preach. I'd preached several times in front of my peers. I was president of the largest club in school, the Christian Club. And here I am in the principal's office. He said, Jeff, I'm going to give you two choices. I said, you can, uh, you'll choose which one. He said, either you can, uh, said, you could pick up uh, trash after school for the next six weeks. Or you can be suspended and go home for two days. I thought it was a test. But I got to tell you, I chose the two days so fast I thought his toupee fell off. And uh, I thought that would be a much better. It was a no-brainer for me. Here was David. He, David was asked what he would choose of these things that he would choose. 
maybe it would require some wisdom, but he said, do not let me fall into the hands of man, but only in the hands of God. And by saying that, he took away choice number two, or took away the choice of being pursued by his enemies. Understand for those, uh, it was a no-brainer for him. Always, number three, always seek to make the right choice by putting yourself in the hands of God. Always put yourself in the hands of God. Don't put yourself in human hands, and particularly not your own. Psalm 119, verse 120 says this, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Well, today we could fear at what could be, but instead we rejoice at what is because we recognize the fact that the judgment, they had to overcome some judgment. 70,000 Israelites died because of the pestilence that came because of David and the Israelites' sin. Sometimes hard for us to understand and maybe sometimes hard for us to explain. But we know that in light of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, that Jesus took our judgment for us. So we no longer fear the judgment if you're a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. But because of what happened, because of what happened to David, what a respect and all we're to have for the God who dealt with David and the nation of Israel in such a way. After the three days, the angel who brought the plague was found on the mountain near Jerusalem. We didn't read these. Let me just tell you about what takes place in the rest of the chapter plague is taking place. 70,000 have died already. And here's the angel of destruction. He comes to Jerusalem and he's about to destroy Jerusalem. And then God stops the angel from the destruction there on a hill right next to, right at Jerusalem. Now this is no small incident or story because on this very hill, it was, has gone by several names. It's also known by Mount Moriah. It's the very place that Abraham took his son Isaac ready to sacrifice him before God stopped him. It's also known as Mount Zion. It is the place in which Solomon would soon stand. Solomon would build his temple where it would stand. And at the time in Scripture, Jebusite owns it by the name of Aruna. David sees the angel on the threshing floor, pleads to God for the sheep of Israel. He asks that they be spared and only he be punished. And through the prophet Gad, David's told to go to the mountain and build an altar and offer a sacrifice. And David went. And Aruna, he offered to David that piece of land. He offered to David his oxen, his plow. said, use this for the fire. Use the oxen for the sacrifice. But David would not. He refused and he was going to buy it for himself. And, he, and while we have lots of words of David and many, many chapters about David in 2 Samuel, many in the Psalms, I have maybe perhaps some of the most profound and greatest lesson for a believer that wants to be like David or wants to be like Jesus or a person after God's own heart. He said in 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 24, he said, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God that which costs me nothing. If you want to give your best to build God's kingdom, offer to God that which costs you something. Application for a New Testament believer is that we're to be living sacrifices, we're told in Romans chapter 12. It's a reasonable service. While salvation is free, Jesus paid it all. We are like formed freely give of ourselves to God in his service, all of our resources for use in his kingdom. Everything that we have belongs to him. Quick illustration, Leonardo da Vinci was once at work for a long period of time on a great masterpiece. He'd labored long to create this great piece of art and it was nearing completion all the while while he was working on this piece, one of his students who stood with jaw dropped watch, watching the great master with the brush. 
Just before finishing the painting, Da Vinci turned to the young student and gave him the brush and said, now you finish it. The student protested, backed away. But Da Vinci said these words, will not what I have done inspire you to do and give your best? As we look and we understand the work of Christ and know Him better every day, are we not inspired to give and to do our very best? Those who seek to do the very least possible or to say this is good enough for God or good enough for God's church do not know what they are missing. Because sacrifice is a part of worship and service to God's church. We live in perhaps the most affluent time in history for the people who are members of the Lord's church, particularly in our part of the world. But we're among the ones who give whatever's left over or whatever is good enough instead of giving whatever is very best. But let us give unto God that of ourselves that cost us nothing. Let's not give us that cost nothing or very little, but do as David did. Be willing to pay full price, which is all of ourselves unto God. On a nearby hill where David sacrificed to God and gave an altar. When David sacrificed to God, the very last phrase in 2 Samuel chapter 24 is this, the plague was averted from Israel. And on a nearby hill from there where you could even make just a little journey, there was another sacrifice made nearly a thousand years later from the descendant of David. His name was Jesus and he is the son of God. And like David's sacrifice, it was a sacrifice of wood and a sacrifice of blood. Like David, it was to stop a plague that cost people their lives. It's the, it's the plague that infects everyone. It's the plague of sin. Without the sacrifice of Jesus, we would all be lost. For salvation is not free, it is to you and me, but it costs the blood of the Lamb of God. And you're not serving to repay your Savior for His sacrifice. You're not trying to earn your salvation. When you serve God, you want to give Him your very best. Give Him that which costs you something. If you want to keep from becoming prideful, which may be your biggest giant, give your best because He gave you His best. He paid full price. He paid it all. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Perhaps you've heard it before. Here it is in a living Bible or a modern translation. And it says this. It says, And so, dear brothers, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Let them be a living sacrifice, holy the kind he can accept. And when you think of what he has done for you, is that too much to ask? Don't let pride get in the way of allowing God's instructions to come to you and for you to follow and lead you down a path you should not go. Humbly serve him. Give him your best. Give your best to build up God's church. And if you have not given your heart and life to Jesus, ask Jesus to save you now. Put away any Pride that would get in the way of giving your heart and your life over to the Lord Jesus. Ask Him to save you. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins. And the Bible promises that He will. Let's bow together. Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come to you now. We recognize how you continue to be at work in our lives, continue to be at work in the church. We pray now, Fathers, we've talked about the giants in our lives. We pray now that if there's any pride, even in us now, Father, it causes us to say, look at ourselves, or I can do this on my own. We pray that you will help us even now to put that aside and allow us only to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation and for everyday existence. 
We thank you, Father, for how you continue to be at work. And we pray also, Father, for those who may be listening today or someone here today that does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. If pride is the obstacle, we know that you can help them to remove that and to place their faith in you. We know that you're working in hearts even now. Thank you for the prayers that are being lifted. Thank you for how you continue to be at work in the lives of individuals in our church and in our community. Thank you for using the ministries of Parkway Baptist Church. May we recognize that only through you, only you make that possible. It's in the precious name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen.